happy place. One, two, three, four, five. And count to five, it's pretty good to be alive. That it's great to be alive. When you play in records with John. Hey, all you lucky listeners out there in earbud land, and welcome to another exciting episode of Playing Records with John. I'm your host, John. And my guest this time is Valina Vigo. Now, Valina is the talent booker for Athens, Georgia's renowned 40-watt club. That's right, that 40-watt club, the one that has been the home base or the launch pad for probably several of your favorite bands, bands like R.E.M., Drive-By Truckers of Montreal, the whole Elephant Six Collective. I mean, the list of bands that have come through that club in the 30 years that Valina has been booking it is is just an amazing who's who. And... Um, yeah, she's got some great stories to tell about that. She's also been the booker for the Buckhead Theater in Atlanta for about 10 years, and that, that place is no slouch either. She's also the manager for two venerable indie rock bands that I really love, Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven. Uh, both those bands are fronted by David Lowry, uh, the singer-songwriter who happens to be Felina's husband. So it's all coming together, right? Uh, in lockdown, uh, there obviously haven't been a lot of tours to manage or shows to book. So Valina has uh, taken some of that time to help produce uh, David Lowry's new solo album, Leaving Key Member Clause. And we will talk about that album. Uh, but mostly, uh, this time gave Valina a chance to reflect on a career that started out with her still in her teens as the lead singer for Mystery Date back in the mid-80s. And I'm glad for that because it's only if she had time to reflect that she would have uh, had time to talk to me. <laughs> So it's a win. Uh, anyway, I think I've said enough. Here's Valina Vigo. I've been booking the um, 40 Watt Club in Athens, Georgia for 30 years. And little did I know that I would be there as long as I have been. Do you know what I mean? I was yeah. a musician in Athens, Georgia for six years and kind of knew the owners and just went down there on a whim after my band broke up and like, hey, can I answer phones? Can I do you know stuff for y'all? And they're like, actually, yes. Right. Yeah. So that's how I kind of got in there. Right. And, you know, 30 years later. So, you know, I always say that, like, no one expects to work anywhere for that length of time mm -hmm. with COVID. Um, and me being furloughed for eight months now because I, I work for Live Nation in Atlanta and then I work for an independent club in Athens. No, I would have never in a million years thought because I have like three or four jobs. And the reason why I have three or four jobs in the music industry, because I always thought, oh, if one goes away, I'll have three more. Right. right. But with COVID, all of them got wiped out. Yeah. So I don't have one job right now that's making money at this point, but in some weird way, and certainly um, I hate anyone that's been affected, you know, work-wise or sick or any of this kind of stuff, but I would have never given myself a vacation. You know, I have been doing this for 30 years and it's kind of given me like almost like a reset, you know, having eight months off and kind of figure out what do I love? What do I love the best? Do I love the booking part? Do I love the management part? Do I love the record company part? And so I'm kind of reflecting, but it is it is interesting how it's going to come back and it will come back and it'll be probably more busier than ever because the live business has been booming for the last, you know, so many years because people are not selling records. So they have to be on the road. So as my husband figured out, because he is a mathematician and a musician, he goes, you know, you've booked over 6,000 shows at the 40 watt alone. I always say I've booked everything from, you know, Nirvana to Snoop Dogg to Kenny Chesney to Merle Haggard. I mean, I have booked every single thing in the last 30 years that I ever wanted to. So it has been really a great <laughs> 30 years. But yes, this year has been pretty crazy, for sure. That experience you have at a great live show, I have a feeling that when that happens again, the first time you feel it, it's going to be like the first time you went to a show. I don't know. I feel like I, 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 there's a part of me that's like, that's going to be great. I don't know what show it's going to be or who I'm going to be standing next to. But I know that we're going to look at each other and be like, oh, my God. I know. I've had <laughs> friends tell me they don't care if someone's just playing the clarinet at the 40 watt. They're coming. They don't care. So it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be the Foo Fighters. Right. It could be 
who uh, some local band. And that's the thing too, that, you know, my demographic, because I'm in a college town is 18 to 24. It's going to be different at Atlanta because my venues are much bigger there and my demographic is different. So we might have, or even with Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven, I mean, probably in that age group, they might be a little hesitant to come out first until everything is um, with, you know, everyone having vaccines and everyone feeling safer. But when you're talking about kids, college kids, I I just don't think we're going to have any problem selling out anything, to be honest. That's a good point. The one good thing too about the 40 Watt Club is Barry Buck. She's, um, we've been together for 30 years and she's the owner of the 40 Watt and she owns that building. So we own it. You know, we're not paying a mortgage on it. We're not paying a lease on it. We're not, you know, so I think we are uh, much luckier than some of the un- independent venues. I'm not saying we're not s- stressed out about this. I don't mean that. No, but 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 paying a lease is a big part of the stress for them. Thank God, Athens, Georgia. Like we just had to do our liquor license in October, and they and they charged us half instead of full the full amount. Not not just us, but just you know bars and and clubs in general. So I think people I think people would hate to see any of the venues around the country close down. Nobody wants to see that. No city wants to see that. No one, you know, fans and people. So I do think people, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm just saying in Athens, they've been very supportive. For me, I grew up in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, but... um you know, I was born in 1973, so by the time I was able to go to shows, I was like in college and driving to Athens for a show. It wasn't the easiest thing to do, but it was definitely the kind of thing you could swing, and it did have this kind of like mecca aspect to it that you were like, you're going to the place that spawned all these great bands that everybody knew, and I do think maintaining that and keeping that going over the years, you know, it does t- sort of take a populace that is into that aspect of the town <laughs> to some extent. Yeah, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're from the South, because some people think that the South, you know, I mean, we, you know, in Atlanta, Alex Cooley, who actually hired me in Atlanta 10 years ago, you know, he he brought the Sex Pistols and Led Zeppelin to Atlanta, you know, in the 70s and stuff. And I've been going to concerts since I was 12, 13, 14 years old because I'm from Atlanta. And um, not to dra- name drop, but I had Deborah Harry in my car because um, I had a driver from the venue to the um, hotel. And we started talking and I said, hey, I saw you. You opened up for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and the Kinks at the Fox Theater. And I, you never say your age. You never say when I was 12, 13. You just say <laughs> you saw them because yeah. they don't want to hear about how right. much old they are. Yeah, I grew up listening to you. <laughs> yeah. So you just politely go. Actually, uh, Robin Zander from Cheat Trick told me that story, like that little trick, like don't ever say, you know, how old you are stuff because it just makes them feel kind of ridiculous. But at the end of our drive, which wasn't a very long drive, but she got out of the car and she's a super nice lady. And she's like, wow, you really are a music fan. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not doing, I mean, yes, it's a business for sure, you know, and, and, and I've done well over the years, but that's not how I got in it. I got in it because I used to be on stage. I know how to write a song. I know how that feels as a promoter, as a booking agent. I have empathy, I guess is the word, is I know how hard it is to get up on stage in front of 50 people to, you know, whatever, 500 people, and and how hard it is to write a song. So, you know, I just don't judge. It might not be my kind of thing. I've certainly booked things that I, you know, probably isn't my, you know, I'm an indie rock girl, so there's some things that I book that maybe isn't my thing, but I still respect what they're doing, you know? And so I think that's really my longevity is that bands coming and going up and down kind of know that when they did have, say, 25 people, you know, on stage, they're like, you kind of took a chance on us and you kept booking us. So, you know what I'm saying? I'm such a small venue that they're coming up and then working in Atlanta now at the three venues that I book. Now I can take them to the 2,500, to the 3,500, to the 1,500. And it's been nice to not say, well, bye. I know you can't keep playing the 40 watt because you've outgrown us. Now I'm getting some of those bands back over the last 10 years. And it's been really nice that I can see them again. That's an interesting idea uh, to me. And it's a big part of one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because there's an aspect of being like a prognosticator or a tastemaker or something when it comes to nurturing talent like that. Not just what you personally were looking for, but some sense of like, okay, this this is where this band is, but this is where this band could be. I don't know. Do you think you have a good eye for that? I do think in the beginning when I was younger that I was, I, I kind of did hit the mark (laughs) as as you're saying. Right. And I kind of made the 40 watt 
again, because I wanted everyone on that stage for them to go, I'm on this stage, kind of like the Apollo. I mean, I really did do that because that's it. When I was in a band and I played like the 688 Club, which was kind of what I looked up to um, with the owners of there, um, because I felt like every night was a different night. And I loved how you opened up the paper and you didn't know what they were going to book. Right. And so I was trying to be really that way. I wasn't trying to be just the punk rock club or the country club or the this club or whatever. Every four years, because I'm a college town, you kind of have to figure out what they like. So when I was younger, it was way easier because I was just way into these bands. I'm like, I have to have Nirvana or I have to have Sufjan Stevens or MIA or whatever. I mean, those were people that I absolutely adored and have to have. But now that I'm older, I take my interns and my assistants and I try to get all kinds of types of people. And I go, what do you listen to? What house party? You know what I mean? Like I am trying to figure out what's on SoundCloud, what the, you know, I know that I don't know all the new things. And Mm -hmm. so- I'm still trying, but my main thing was, I think I was at the 40 watt, maybe five years. And I said, if I'm tired of doing this, I need to pass the baton because someone behind me is going to have that kind of energy that I had. So far, I still have the energy. And so far, the owner still has that energy where we're excited about up and coming new bands, right? And you still get the goosebumps and you still kind of, you know, you can kind of tear up when bands are singing, you know, when the fans are singing over the band, right? Right. Um, I mean, I've had some of these younger bands and, you know, they'll be at the 40 watt and they'll be like, how do y'all know us? Because it's the first time in Athens. And they're like, how do you know us? How did we sell this out? So this, like you're saying, this town is a great town because it is such a young college town. People do go out and they do listen to music. It does make you emotional that people are still very much into music. It's not, it's always going to be people work out to music. They listen to music. They sleep to music. I mean, just think about that. Every single thing has something to do with music, a soundtrack to a movie. Now, some people might stop and wa- you know listen to their music. They say that like it's a certain age where you kind of stop buying new music and you kind of go with the classics or go what you want, you know, what you loved in college. But that's okay too. A lot of those bands that I loved in the in the late '80s that are still together or still producing, they're prolific and they're still great. So, I mean, to me, it's it's. I mean, I'm sure everybody thinks that about the bands of their generation, but I hear a lot of artists that are still very vital going into those later decades. So it's not quite a nostalgia thing. It's not like I'm just listening to old records, but I am listening to the latest record by someone who has been making records for 20 or 30 years, most of the time. Oh, I remember when David brought back Camper and they started doing more shows. And I remember him thinking, are our fans like, so romanticizing us that when we finally do play live again, it's not going to be as good as they remembered, right? Now, that didn't happen because all of those guys are so accomplished that they be, that they were stronger live because all of them had done their other side bands, right? So it wasn't like they had taken their, um, you know, instruments and not seen it for 15 years and then came back. Yeah, I told him um, because I was in New York at their first shows and I remember going, oh my God, th- I think this is better. I think all of everybody's gotten so seasoned. And so like you're saying, we don't have to be young to love what we love and the, the bands that we love, you know, don't have to be 20 something years old. There's some times that I do book bands and they're they're not up to par. And I do feel I feel kind of embarrassed for them. I don't say anything, but but their voices have gone. They're maybe not as quick on the guitar, or maybe the drummer's not as quick. But but most people, most musicians, because they do have egos, they they want to be good. So I think they still practice for a tour and when when you see them, they are going to kick ass. <laughs> you know, I was at a um I was at a show that was I think it was Camper Van Beethoven opening for Cracker. This was at a place called The Bottle Tree in uh, in Birmingham. Oh, I was there. Oh, you were there. Yeah, I love that little place. That was a key lime pie show, I believe, and then a Cracker set. Uh-huh. It, anyway, it was um, it was it was great. And I'm actually kind of interested in that. There's so many threads of what you're talking about that are worth picking up. But since we're talking right now about those kind of return tours, you yeah. know, what was that like, sort of? taking a band and kind of restarting them. I mean, one thing that I guess may have made it a little different is that Cracker was an ongoing concern in those years. And so it's not like David Lowry wasn't out there with his songwriting. Yeah. What was that like, jump-starting or restarting a fan base in a weird way? Well, I think like uh, what David and, and the boys did was they did it really slowly. Like he kind of invited Victor up and then he invited Greg up and it was called the Apothecary Tour. It wasn't like they got all on the phones because they hadn't talked to each other in at least 10 years. The way it was, it was very organic, kind of putting their little toe in the water to see if it works kind of thing Mm -hmm. and it was working and what we realized too since um, I'm the manager and um, David is in both bands 
he realized having both bands together, even though that's like a four hour night for him or three and a half hour night of him singing (laughs) (laughs) that he knew that like, there is different camper fans and different cracker fans, but putting them together just makes the numbers more where we can play a nine thirty club every year um, in DC and we can do bigger shows, right. With both bands. Cause you've got two different audiences. And since he wrote the lyrics basically, and was the singer in both bands, he loves both of them. Do you know what I mean? So for him to be able to, to play again, camper songs that he loves so much and then, you know, introducing both audiences, you know, it's a win-win for us. Well, I lost a nine in Mexico. Lost two teeth, well, I don't know. People see me coming and they move to the other side of the road. I was a huge camper fan. I met him um, in 1989 when he was opening for 10,000 Maniacs um, in Atlanta. One of my friends worked at a... Uh, at, um, Warner Brothers. And so she, she, you know, took me to the show. So I didn't know David. That's the first time I got to know David. And I'm a huge camper fan. So for when I realized that there was even an opportunity for them to play shows together, you know, I was a huge cheerleader for that. There's some beauty in both of those bands, you know, there's, there's, you know, it's, they're totally different, but for some reason it works together good with both of them playing. Um, And so I think so. I just, um, I just, I just admire all of their um, playing. I think Jonathan is amazing violinist. I think Greg Leischer is the fantastic um, guitarist. And I just think, I'm, and Victor, I'm just so thankful that they got to do that again. I, now that they're older, I'm glad they got to come back. And I'm glad that, you know, when you're talking about original bands, because I, again, I book so many bands that are older and, you know, someone has already passed or they're not talking and you don't get the original lineup. You get a couple of original lineups. I remember I had Gang of Four once and they were f- fantastic. And then a few years later, I had them again and it was, we called them Gang of One <laughs> because it was only the guitarist. So there was no lead singer. I mean, it was ridiculous, right? I can say that honestly, that it just, was not up to par and so for me to be able as a manager to say yes it's the original lineup camper van beethoven and like you said they'll play the whole key lime pie or revolutionary sweetheart or whatever they do you know it's a very prideful thing for me i love i love that they're all together and they're healthy and they can do it you know and they're not going to play as much um as some other bands but if they can play 30 shows a year you know in major cities um, and have a great time and make a little money. I think that's phenomenal. I actually had a conversation like this with Greg Leischer for a previous episode. Oh, I, I listened to it. I heard Greg Leischer talking about the breakup, the initial breakup of Camper Van Beethoven, and he was in his mid-20s when that happened, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of tied into what you do with regards to the nurturing aspect of booking bands that are maybe on their way up. The, the, it Sometimes it impresses me how young people are. I mean, they were so young the first time around. Of course, it's going to be difficult to keep that on track across all these tours and just, I don't know, all the hours together and away from your families and stuff. It seems like bands that don't break up are a wonder. <laughs> that That's actually why I came on because I actually listened to Greg Leischer's, um, when you had him on and I thought, what a gentleman just kind of expressing himself. Cause he's a quiet, quiet, you know, reserved person. And for him to be able to say some of the things he said about the early years, cause I wasn't there in the early years. Right. And so I wasn't there at the breakup. Fortunately for David, well, he had about a year and a half off and then he still went Cracker and then Cracker sold, you know, a million records on their second album. I've always said, oh, I'm not good at math, but obviously I've had to be good at math because I could have really tanked the 40 watt many moons ago. <laughs> and that's the thing is like people love what I booked in the, you know, the olden days or whatever. But if I don't keep booking really good things and not doing well for either of my venues, I'm not going to have a job. Right. Like they'll go, great, you booked 
whoever. And that's really exciting that you did that in 1991. But what have you done in 2019? So that's the thing is that me and Barry, the owner of the 40 Water, are constantly saying when people go, oh, when was the best time? When Are you just so sad that those, you know, that, that, that period of time is over? And I'm like, no, because it always kind of, you always find some local band that just knocks your socks off that you go, oh my God, this is great. And so I just, I just gravitate towards what's coming up instead of looking back you know, 15 years. Those are fun times for sure. But it's like, you can't really go, oh, well, I already did this. So I don't need to, I don't need to work hard. You started out as a musician. And I do think that is kind of a key piece of maybe your insight into just this whole equation, how to work with people who are, you know, creative or artistic or whatever you want to call that, that side of the thing. Talk a little bit about Mystery Date. I was in an all girl band called Mystery Date with my sister. The baddest My sister always wanted to be a musician. She saw the Go-Go's at a, like an all ages show. And she's like, I want to be Jane Wheedlin. And she almost looked like Jane Wheedlin, right? Little dark haired guitarist. And so she moved up here to Athens on a Greyhound with like no money, started working at fast food joints. And she got me and my bass player to come up here. And at first we're like, what is this podunk town? It just seems so um, small to us compared to Atlanta. Right. And my sister was taking her shoes off on stage and we're like, what the hell are you doing? Are you a hippie now? Like we couldn't even figure out what the, what she was doing because we were in a garage band. We love the cramps. We love the gun club. You know, we love the Smiths, you know, this is the eighties. So, you know, I was Susie and the Banshees, but being an all girl band in the eighties and being so young, um, cause she was 17 and I was 19. You have to understand <laughs> that was hard because you just had those frat boys or just boys in general, just like, which one do you like? If you wasn't nice to them, it's like, Oh, she's gay or she's that, you know what I mean? Like you're either a bitch or you're gay or this or that. And so I got kind of kind of disenchanted. I mean, I was the lead singer, right? So I was front and center. I didn't play an instrument. I just sang. And um, so I asked Michael, um, Michael Stipe, how do you do this? You know, you know, this is like 1985. And I'm like, how do you do this? Because they were, you know, getting popular, right? And he told me, which I thought was so smart of him, he says that he kind of focuses on one person in the, uh, in the audience and kind of plays to them. So, you know what I mean? If he's playing like more of a college hangout or a pizza joint or whatever they were doing, they played a lot of universities, you know, so it was a lot of college kids. And I thought, wow, I wish I had that attitude. broke up while we were recording a record and when we broke up I didn't know that I was going to stay in this business but um, I, I, I just feel better behind the scenes I know that I was singing I just sung on my husband's new record and I just helped him produce that I do love that part of it but for me to like be on stage or any of that I'm just it, I don't care you know, I love I love being the businesswoman I love being behind the scenes and every once in a while singing that's fun you know because I did enjoy it but my calling is what I do, which is the talent buying. So because I had booked my, my band and known the club owners in Athens and Atlanta and kind of, you know, kind of studied them, that when I did have the opportunity, I had a great mentor that used to, um, he used, Jared Bailey, he used to um, own the 40 Watt with Barry Buck. He just allowed me when I said, I've got to have Nirvana or I got to have so-and-so. He would just go, are you sure? Are you sure? Because he just, he, you know, these are new upcoming bands. He just didn't know who these people were. And I said, absolutely. My first real show at the 40 Watt, 
was Nirvana for $1,500. It was right before Nevermind broke. 91 to 2005 is probably my prime time when it comes to just every single band that I booked was just became so big, you know, that like they, even if they sold out the 40 watt or barely sold out the 40 watt, they just became huge, huge bands. Um, the Foo Fighters played after that a few years after um, Nirvana stopped because of Kirk passing. And I remember him saying like one of his favorite Nirvana um, experiences was we, you know, took Nirvana to Peter Buck's house and because they wanted to see his record collection and they all spent the night there because Barry Buck was married to Peter at the time. And in fact, it's so sad because they played all arenas this past year. They did, they were going to do two club shows. One was going to be the 40 watt club for their 25th anniversary of Foo Fighters. Here is Dave Grohl, who's bigger than big, who picked the 40 watt to do that. But unfortunately, you know, it had to be canceled. They didn't tour. Um, and that was going to happen April 24th. So I'm hoping that that will be rearranged again because they were hoping that it would. And I, and I think Dave is a, a really sweet guy um, and he probably will do it for us. But that's the kind of like those bands remember the 40 watt. And they remember their first break and they remember me and Barry. I think that's one good thing about being. Um, girls that run a club and uh, there's something about like a maternal feel when a band comes and you know the probably hospitality is a little bit better and everything's just more you know arranged a little bit more and stuff like that and we just have just always had great experiences even with some of those bands that maybe are a little bit rougher than indie rock they still were very respectful to the 40 watt home I think because women were running it you know I hope so, because that's how I feel. I don't know if it's Athens, Georgia, and it's just a small town, and they're not acting as crazy, or maybe they couldn't get the drugs they needed. I'm not exactly sure, but I just don't really have like any horror stories of just like true craziness backstage where it's just like unacceptable. That Nirvana story really interests me because I think Kurt was kind of famous for being a fan of REM. Yeah, yeah. But I saw them play Birmingham at the Boutwell Auditorium, um, I guess a couple of years later, and they were huge then. And it was the Breeders opening for them. I went to that tour in Atlanta. I know that tour. I mean, it was a great, great show. Yep. But I felt Kurt Cobain, I felt like, I mean, this was maybe my imagination. My projection was he feels like he's down in Alabama and he's like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And then here's this crowd of people that actually were just like, I think he was taken aback by like how legit the crowd was in a way as far as being fans and really being into what they were doing because you sensed this totally different person than the kind of public persona he was so sincere and at the end of the show I, I remember him thanking the crowd and I still remember that as one of the more convincing thank yous I've ever heard for the crowd he seemed genuinely like surprised that there was this that there was this explosion you know coming through the south or whatever and I think back to like you know what they represented culturally there were a lot of kind of meatheads because they were all over the radio but there also were a lot of like a lot of my favorite folks saw that tour or were at that show, and it's just like, it seems to me like that, there was something special about that band. It must have been interesting to be there sort of before they exploded, but I guess if you worked that hard to book them, surely you recognize something about them. Well, I had seen them like the year before at the Masquerade when they had um, an earlier record out, so I was a fan. And I, had, I, I was a fan of Sub Pop, so I had a lot of Sub Pop, like the colored vinyl so a friend of mine um, that lives in actually Milwaukee, Wisconsin, worked at a record, I mean, worked at a record store and he would send me like the, every single sub pop. So even though I'm very far from Seattle and Portland and that whole area, I very much loved all of that music coming out of there. And so I actually went to the REM office and they had, um, it's when cassettes, speaking of old school, it was cassettes of Nevermind's record. And I go, hey, can I have that? Right. And the manager go, looked at it. He had no idea. He's like, sure. Because he probably got like tons of shit, you know, in the mail. And I just listened to it. And the first time I listened to it, I go, this is freaking amazing. And I have to have this band. Right. So I didn't know them personally at that time. 
I just loved their music and I was a super fan and I knew the tour manager. And so that day we just all bonded very well. And so, um, to make a long story short, like I said, after the show, uh, you know, I, I got in the van and, and took him over to, to Peter's house. Now, Peter was Peter was touring. So, I mean, up touring, I apologize. He was recording. So, R.E.M. wasn't there. And so, we we always question, and I think Michael has said this in press, that like, what if they had been there and he met them then, that time? Could it have changed anything? Maybe not. You know, we don't know that. But he was, they were super fans and they wanted to see Peter. And Peter has a, a, a huge vinyl record collection. I'm sure it's tripled now, but in 91, it was pretty impressive. And so Dave Grohl and all of them wanted to see that. But yeah, they were very grounded guys, you know, just very grounded. And yes, it was about to soar and everything was selling out on this tour. But I know that the tour manager actually got mad at me because they were so tired because we stayed up all night um, listening to records and just goofing off that they did. They kind of wanted to blow off like a radio show or something in Atlanta the next day. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. But I mean, like I said, Dave Grohl did say it was one of their favorite, you know, favorite times of the tour. I mean, that's what he told me a few years later. And I'd see Dave Grohl, like, you know, I'd be in LA or I'd be somewhere and I'm going, what you listening to? He'd always turn me on to some up and coming band. And when William Morris LA, uh, emailed me to tell me that Foo Fighters wanted to do their 25th anniversary and they're only doing uh, two venues, two club venues. And we're one of them. It just made me happy. And that's the whole thing about like Fugazi or just any of these bands that just over the years, they just don't change. They're the same people, you know? And, and I just think they are just very appreciative that they still get to do it. I still think that they're kind of Stunned. There was a new documentary out that's, or it's coming out soon. They just screened it at Sundance and I happened to catch like an online screening of it, but it's about the band Sparks. Um, and th- there's a period where they weren't selling records and nobody really was in a hurry to sign them. And they were just kind of recording and writing and like, it was moving to me because it's something that gets at like the heart of almost everybody I love is that they're going to do it anyway. Like whether there's success or there's not, they're going to be off doing their thing anyway. But there's a, there's a whole section where you kind of get the feel that if they hadn't saved their money when they had their initial burst of success, like they were, they had two or three different times, like in the seventies into the eighties where they had like a hit record, you know, and they saved their money. And if they, the, they were saying that if they had not saved their money, they would not have been able to survive three or four years of being quote unquote irrelevant or of not having a home but they were instead, they were able to keep working and eventually, you know, find their way back into releasing records. But so many artists would just drop out of the business then or not be able to do I mean, it. I, I will say, cause I, like I said, I was under that umbrella of just how REM, you know, in their career and, and some of my other friends that live here and they're pretty frugal, even though they don't necessarily have to be. But when I do see like three tour buses come to the 40 watt club and I see all that money, that's just, you know what I mean? And I know for a fact that when they go home, they're not going to see very much money because of their overhead. And I certainly don't want to school anybody because they're having a great time. And some people just go, Hey, listen, if I didn't have a tour bus, there's no way I could do this. You know, I, I wouldn't do it. So everybody has to pick and choose what they do. But I will say that because it's not just you know, a certain genre of music that like wastes money. It's, it's all across the board. You know, you see people that you think should be super smart and they just really wasn't smart with their money, even if they did have hit records, you know, or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. If a new and upcoming band has a five-year career, I think that's wonderful. If you have a 31, that's even better, but that doesn't happen often. It's usually about five to eight years and then they break up. You know, the record labels are so different now, um, the way the, the advances happen and all that kind of stuff. So the actual music industry pretty tough, pretty tough. So for people to go, Oh my God, my t-shirt's $25. It's like, Oh my God, shut the fuck up. Here's these guys in a van or in a tour bus, you know, and that's really where they make their money is on merch. They don't really make it anywhere else. So not that we have to school people because they want to kind of romanticize the music industry, you know, and they just want to have a few drinks and see their favorite band. But if they kind of understood and broke it down per hour, how much these guys make, you know, when it's like 10 hours in a bus and then they get there and they get to play for an hour and a half, you know, like you hear those famous people like Elvis Costello and all those people going, yeah, that hour and a half was phenomenal, but it's the other, you know, 23 hours of touring that completely sucks, right? You you don't have to pay me for the actual onstage, pay me for the, the 23 hours, you know, before that, right? So, you know, you really have to love it um, to stay in it on my side and as a musician. And I have seen bands 
um, older bands than we were talking about, um, you know, that were like popular in the seventies and they are so burnt and they are just so shitty to their crew and they are not singing up to par, but they've been through three marriages. <laughs> they have some big old house in California or whatever, and it's just to pay the bills. And you can kind of tell that they don't care about their audience. Some of the nicest people to their audience are country stars. They were so kind. They do the before and after meet and greets. They look them straight in the eye and they, you know, are so thankful to say they're thankful. And even though I'm not like, say, a huge country fan, um, I still have to admire the way they treat their fans because it's very respectful. Not all musicians are just like sex, drugs and rock and roll. You know what I mean? Just like all bar owners or talent buyers don't have to be sleazy and ripping off a band or going crazy. I mean, it is it is a business. Who has surprised you the most being like at the stature that they are? You've already mentioned what a what a minch Dave Grohl is, but like who has surprised you with just like how level-headed, how down to earth they are at that level? I tell you, I I was very very impressed with Merle Haggard. I had Merle about six months before he passed and he had his longtime um, manager with him and his wife. So I spent the day with them and I just loved, he, he, they called me lady V all day long. Lady V I go, God, I hope that sticks. It hasn't stuck, but I really want it to stick. I'll call you that if you like. <laughs> okay. Yeah, please. And uh, one of the stories they told me, and these are older gentlemen, you know, that, that manager is very old. I don't, can't remember how old um, Merle Haggard was when he passed, but you know, older gentlemen, and anyway, he was just like, if this man hadn't have given me my first $25 to record my record, there would be no Merle Haggard. I just loved how he just still totally had faith in his in his partner, you know, in his manager. Mm-hmm. Just how polite they were the whole the whole day and not, you know, demanding a bunch of stuff. Sometimes when people are going down, they demand more than the ones that are rising. The ones that are huge, those are the ones like, oh, everything's cool. Eddie Vedder. No, I, I can get up. I can move. Those are the ones that are so humble. Um, but the ones that are kind of going this way that were popular and then they're going this way, ooh, they're just, they're just, they just, they're just so unhappy. So they kind of make your whole day kind of miserable. That, that sounds like insecurity to me too. Well, they're just kind of embarrassed they have to play, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Right? I don't know what it is. I mean, I will say that the out of all these people, I mean, the majority I have great experiences with and they're very sweet and say how much they're happy to be there. When I was going to see shows, it was like there are bands that come to Atlanta and then there are bands that come to Athens. And there was a little bit of a difference. And some bands would sort of skip or maybe they, if they were at that kind of indie major label sort of you know what i mean if they were on that like a recent indie band that got signed to a major they might do atlanta one tour and athens the next or something it seemed like some bands kind of split the difference oh, i had flaming lips three times in one year at athens because they hated atlanta it was funny as hell that the agents would go what the hell are y'all you know what are you feeding them because they want to come to athens instead of atlanta and it's just like they just felt more comfortable i mean you know, especially the especially the international bands like Bell and Sebastian and some of those, they were just they were super fans of Athens and Athens music because Neutral Milk Hotel was here. That scene was here. Olivia Trimmer Control in the in the mid nineties. And those bands were really popular over in, you know, over in England. So when the UK bands were coming, they wanted to be where, you know, the people that they admired. So it's very interesting to say when I'm speaking at the University of Georgia or speaking wherever, you never know what is going to, somebody's going to fancy what band, because we've had so many good bands come through here that sometimes I don't even have to bring up the B-52s. Do you know what I mean? Because that's too long ago. So you have to bring up something that was more that was more recent. And that's fine. Yeah, yeah the Elephant Six Collective, so to speak. That's what I'm talking about, yep. They were like rooted in Athens, even though so, so many of them went off to other places or were from other places. It's interesting that you still associate it kind of with Athens. Anyway, there was just a lot of great music being made at that time. And it did kind of seem like a second coming of Athens in a strange way. And I needed it. I needed it because it wasn't happening. So that's why just thankfully... Um, you know, like you said, every four years, we kind of reinvent. So the 80s was this way. The mid 90s was this way. The 2000s was this. I mean, thank God we have these big bands because, yes, we have national acts come through. But sometimes your local bands draw more than your national acts. I book six days a week. 
So I'm not just booking Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. So you've got to have a lot of, you know, think about that. That's how the 6,000 comes in because if I book six days a week, right, it's more than that now. But you know what I mean? In three bands a night, it just, it just, it just accumulates to be a shitload. Um, I do want to, something you mentioned earlier about working for uh, REM's management company. A little bit about, when, when was that period? Like what, were you, were you there during those kind of crucial years when they were, when they were just growing and growing? Yes, yes. I was so lucky to be there in 1984 to about 88 and that was prime time. And I worked on their green tour and I did their fan club. So I did from 10 to two and my bass player did, um, you know, two to six. And we thought the phone was going to ring, you know, every once in a while and it rang nonstop. And it was basically like, when are they going to be in Kalamazoo, Michigan? When are they going to be here? It was just, you know what I mean? It was just like that tour was huge for them. And we had no idea they were as popular because, again, they don't talk about it when they're home. Right. And I then I realized, holy shit, like this is they're super popular. Right. So that was a so, yeah. So off and on, I worked for them. But that green tour was like the main was the main my, my main thing there. And um, they're like family to me. They're like my my brothers. I've always loved I mean, especially growing up, what they represented as as a band from the South. Like, they were so different from other, like, Southern rock or whatever people might have imagined, country music. You know, th- when they hit the scene, I remember how important that was to me. And that's one of those things, like I said, that made Athens this place where you're like, oh, is everybody there, like, just really cool or something? But, like, I don't know, something about that band, their integrity. That's a good word. It's integrity. And I feel like I am a manager because, I mean, the way I manage is because I was around them for those four years. And um, I respect their managers so much and I respected them. And I love that even once they had money, you know, they still live in the same house as they they bought 30 something years ago. Right. We all live in the same area, um, which is uh, the historic area. We're all neighbors. Um, but for them, they could have lived anywhere in the world, you know, and they, and they stayed, they stayed here. The only person that didn't was, was Peter, you know, and he, he, um, got remarried and had his children and and, and lives in Portland now, but he comes to visit, you know, as much as he can, not during COVID, but I, 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 we see him like at least three times a year, you know. Didn't he also live in Seattle for a time or? He did, he did. So he's just anywhere that there's a scene. <laughs> yeah, well, anywhere where his wife is. He's had two other wives. So one lived in Seattle, one lived in Portland. So that's how it works. That's how David Lowry got to Athens is because he's married to me. So, um, and how he got to Richmond because his first wife, right? But uh, yeah, I have just great admiration for that band. And um, I'm so thankful that just, like I said, by being with them, because, you know, I was so young. I was like 21 years old when I first met them. Um, and they were young too. I, I, le- I learned the right way in this industry. I've had some really good mentors and I'm very thankful for that. As a manager dealing with other bookers, have you, have you run into some real shit shows or people who just... Oh, it, oh, I loved it in the beginning because I loved when I, I was tour managing for a little bit and I remember saying, you know, I book a venue. So that, like, you know what I mean? You can't, you can't rip me off because I know exactly how things are run, right? And I, and some would be surprised, but I kind of had to say just ahead of time, like, don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> Please, God, don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> uh, because no, no, I mean, it's interesting. Some of the major cities, I would like, you know, get these wet bills in the middle of the hallway and I'm like, can I have a settlement sheet? Can I, can you tell me how many people were here? Did we go into bonuses. It was like crazy. There's very few women talent buyers, you know, in the country. And it, you know, it is a man's world. The industry is a man's world. And um, that's why I kind of hire so many women assistants, you know, because I want to kind of give them a leg up because it's kind of hard to in our industry. Every booking agent, there's very few women booking agents in major agencies, right? It's mostly men. I mean, they're not there. You know, I mean, even some of our bigger promoters, it's like I, I, I would walk in and go, where's your women buyers? And they're like, oh, so and so. That's a secretary. Where's your buyers? You know, where are your buyers? And so in some ways, you know, um, and it's probably helped that I was a lead singer. So I am kind of assertive. But I mean, I've definitely had to be a little competitive or do the things that I've had to do because I would have just gotten walked over. That wouldn't have helped. Money is everything. So one of my um, old GMs told me like, they're not your friends. Like, you know what I mean? There'll be a buyer that can give them $10,000 more and they're going to go where that $10,000 is. And it just is, it's money. You know, it's a money, money, you know, situation, but you know, hopefully I'm so fair in my deals that if they have to choose between say the 40 water, one of the other venues that they're going, you know what? I like her, you know, she's been with us forever. She, she saw 
when I had 25 people, 50 people, and that's Kevin Barnes. always plays the 40 watt you know and he always says that when I go you're so kind you're so nice that you do this all the time for us and they're like my god Belina you had us when like nobody was here and I go I know I know but you don't have to keep being that kind he doesn't you know and he does I, I live in Baltimore but I was in Atlanta for some some work training at that time and then on my last day of training I went down and saw of Montreal at the Buckhead uh I believe that was like May of 2011 or something like that, somewhere in Yeah, there. I booked it, yeah, yeah. What a great show. I mean, and, and, and every one of these people that we're talking about, and again, I'm not just saying it because he's your husband, David Lowry, Kevin Barnes, these people are like yeah. musical geniuses. They're songwriting geniuses. Yeah. That of Montreal show was like, was one of those things that had me smiling for a week after just because of what, a, what an explosion it was. Is there a difference between why you would book someone in Atlanta or Athens? Does it have to do... I, I can't even mentally compare the, the size of the venues. Is the Buckhead just a larger venue than the 40 Watt? Yeah, so, so 40 Watt is 600, and Bucket Theater's 1,500, Tabernacle's 2,500, and then the Roxy is, you know, well, you know 30, 3,800. And you book all those? And I book all of them. And I don't book them exclusively. We have other buyers that book those clubs, right? But I have the opportunity that if I know the band or the manager or whatever, and I want to put them in one of those venues, that I had the opportunity to do that. And so for um, about seven years, I was a sole buyer for the Buckhead Theater. So um, so that's when I was telling you when I had Kevin Barnes and, and drive by and built a spill and some of those guys, I just basically was like, Hey man, I know you always play the 40 watt, but I had this new venue. I need you to play Atlanta. Cause they were already playing Atlanta anyway. So it wasn't between Atlanta and Athens. They were already playing the major market. I just needed them to play my venue instead of the, my competitors in Atlanta. Cause I have competitors in Atlanta. It's very competitive in Atlanta. Actually. I would bet, you know, because there's just so many more venues and just so many, so, so many more buyers. We're all friends. You know what I mean? We all shake hands, but at the end of the day, we are fighting for the same for the same bands for sure well, especially with you being at all those different levels it's like you're competing at almost every level within that atlanta ecosystem which is great because i didn't have that for seven years i only booked the bucket theater so i only had the 40 watt and then the bucket theater and then when live nation took over and those are their three venues they were nice enough to allow me to be in those other rooms right so i've had the opportunity to um to grow you know with the company um, and so, um, that's been super nice because like I said, for 20 years, I was in a 600 cap room and a lot of people were like, we love you, but we've outgrown you. But now they don't, they can't say they outgrow me because I, I go, no, no, you don't. No, you haven't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got, a, I got, a, I got a 3,500. I got a 1,500. I got a 2,500. Tell me what you want. Right. Yeah. Very few people stay in the same as a talent buyer for 30 years in the same venue. It doesn't happen. People come and go, they sell it. And so for me and Barry to be together, for this many years and for her to own that venue and me book it i'm the sole booker that is rare you know um it's also badass yeah oh thank you that's sweet like my mom you know not to get into this but my mom worked for sam phillips so she worked with roy orbison and elvis presley and jerry lee lewis back in 1957 and i remember when she was telling me all this stuff i was just like i don't want to hear it they're rednecks or country you know and then of course as we got older we're like now who did you know who did you work with you know and she would tell us these these stories of sun records and um and all that stuff so it's kind of in my blood you know what i mean she started it and then my sister and i did the band and then then um the management and and the and the club but it's like all i know i didn't finish college i only went for a year and a half so it's really i'm I, i've worked really hard for this and my name is everything to me like you know honorable name um to be fair but it's like 
I don't know what else I would have done. I mean, I really don't because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to be a lawyer or a school teacher or a nurse. Right. So even though she got me into the band, which was something I'm saying that I wasn't like super comfortable with, I will forever thank my sister who lives in Czech Republic. She lives in Prague. She's been in Prague for the last 20 years, but like, I will always thank her for getting us up to Athens because it kind of changed my life. You did mention earlier that in this COVID time, uh, David recorded a record, essentially, that you are, uh, I mean, I looked, you, you seem to be all over it, like percussion and backing vocals and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were crazy. <laughs> we, were, we had nothing to do. We were just, like, recording at the house. Well, the first night in Orkin Hill was a nanny on the porch. Let it roll, let it roll, let it roll down that on the second night in Oregon Hill, there was a brawl out in the street. Let it roll, let it roll, let it roll down that And so he's telling me these ideas and, and, and the lyrics. Of course, he wrote it. You know, he wrote the music. But I'm like, hey, why don't we do this with it? Why don't we do that with it? Why don't we ask so-and-so? Because, you know, musicians... You know, we have musician friends all over the world. Do you know what I mean? So we had our friend from Australia. We had our friend from Canada. Like, you know, we'd send them stuff and then they would bring it, send it back to us. And some things we cut, some things we didn't. But it was a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun for me to be really present because I wasn't booking, you know, four clubs and I wasn't doing this and I wasn't doing that. That like we had, I had the opportunity to kind of like really embrace something that I haven't really, you know, done in a while, which has been the musician side of it. Mm-hmm. and the producer side of it, you know? Again, I think it's really well produced. Whatever hand you had in it, I do think that there's something just very nicely done about this record. People can experience it on uh, on a couple of streaming sites. They can go to Bandcamp or to David's site, I think, and, yeah. and play it. But the best thing to do, of course, is to buy it. <laughs> yeah, like we so we only printed up a thousand records and we sold it out in three days, and that was really great. And now you can download it for sure and still pay for it. You know what I mean? But you're only going to have it downloaded. And people wanted just the album because he signed it. And he, did you see it? They had the forty watt. The front the 40 watt picture. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like all the beer cups and just the just, you know, kind of funky picture of the 40 watt. It kind of was like kind of perfect. No, it is. It's a it's a very it's a it's kind of a grimy image and a beautiful image at the same time because it is t- <laughs> it is totally that after show feeling. Yes, right? yes, Sunday, Sunday morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a it's a really fun record, and you know, of course, we've talked about it. it's a really great venue, and it's a I don't know, I'm 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 it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Like I said, I listened to the Greg Leischer interview, and I loved both of y'all how y'all were talking, and I said, you know what, I'm going to do this one, you know. So I'm so thankful that you picked a date that worked for us, and um, it's been a pleasure. I'm I'm Team Lady V. <laughs> yeah, hashtag Lady V. Yeah. <laughs> One day, Valina Vigo is going to retire and write her memoir, and I will read it. Uh, but for now, she is looking forward to the fall when she hopes to have the 40-watt open again in some capacity. And, you know, fingers crossed for that, but fingers crossed for all of us. Uh, don't forget, you can find David Lowry's solo album, Leaving Key Member Clause, co-produced by Valina, at davidlowrymusic.com or at davidlowry.bandcamp.com. As for this podcast... Look for F-Y-I-Z. That's F-Y-I-Z, wherever you look for podcasts. And subscribing to that will get you this feed, which gets you future episodes of Playing Records with John, as well as other shows you might like that are kind of adjacent to this one. Uh, But for now, um, I kind of need to go start doing things that are worth putting in a memoir someday. So, bye. on it my dog just ate my um my new sweater <laughs> oh no he is she is just a mess anyway sorry <laughs>